Welcome to this civic moment where we dive headfirst into the issues affecting our communities and explore the possibilities of our civic future with local and regional leaders. I'm Bethany Copeland. And I'm Eric Ryder. And we're graduate fellows with the Gephardt Institute for Civic and Community Engagement at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for being with us today. The first episode of season three is a recording from our live podcast taping before an audience at Washington University in St. Louis on September 29th, 2022 as part of Civic Action Week. This episode features a conversation with WashU alum, Aaron Napperstack about his work in transit, design advocacy, and community organizing. Aaron is a co-host, producer, and creator of The War on Cars, the popular podcast dedicated to pushing back against the pernicious effects of car culture and automobile dominance. He's also the founder and former editor-in-chief of Streets Blog, a publication covering urban transportation, land use, and environmental issues with outlets in six U.S. cities. Before launching Streets Blog in 2006, Napperstack worked as a journalist, community organizer, and producer on the nascent internet of the mid-90s. His advocacy and organizing over the last two decades have been instrumental in the development of New York City's bike network, Car Safer Streets, free parks, and legislative victories on behalf of bicyclists, pedestrians, and transit riders. Napperstack is also the author of Honku, the Zen Anecdote for Road Rage, a book of haiku poetry inspired by the endless horn honking outside of his apartment window. Aaron lives in Brooklyn, New York with his wife, documentary film producer Joanne Nirenberg, and their two sons. He graduated summa cum laude from Washington University in St. Louis in 1993, earned a master's degree at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism in 1994, and was a Loeb Fellow at Harvard University's Graduate School of Design in 2012. We hope you enjoy this episode. Just a quick note about this civic moment. This civic moment is a student-run podcast that began in 2021, and tonight you're part of history. It's our first live recording, but we're super excited to have Aaron as our guest. We talk with regional leaders to share their civic journey and offer insights about how we can strengthen our civic bonds during this time of hyper-partisanship. So getting started, Aaron, we usually begin our podcast by asking guests about their early life and childhood. We'd love to hear a little bit about your growing up and the values instilled in you that relate to civic engagement and your work today. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, it's really nice to be back at WashU again. Quick, my background really quickly. Um, uh, I grew up in um, Boston, D.C., and Cleveland, and um, my dad was an academic, so we moved around uh, a bit, and um, uh, he was a social worker. Uh, both my parents were social workers, so raised by social workers. Um, my, my father's work was mainly focused on housing and urban policy. Um, he helped write a piece of federal legislation in the 70s called the Community Reinvestment Act that was um, uh, designed to try to end discriminatory um, uh, lending practices by banks when it came to housing. So, you know, it was really hard if you lived in a poor neighborhood, a black neighborhood in a big American city to get a mortgage. So that was what my dad worked on. My mom was more on the like micro side of, of social work. So she was a therapist. And, um, uh, around the time that I went to Wash U, 
um, she, she went on to create a company called Health Journeys that makes um, guided imagery audio meditation programs. So, um, yeah, so a couple social workers. Awesome. And you mentioned that you're a WashU alumnus. Um, and you also uh, graduating in 1993, and you also earned a master's degree at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism in 1994. What stimulated your decision to pursue journalism? <laughs> uh, just total lack of, of commitment and indecision. Mainly, I was like, okay, um, you know, I applied after like in my senior year. I, was, I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I loved WashU. I liked school a lot, which was not true prior to WashU. And, um, so I wanted to go to grad school, but I wasn't totally sure what. So I applied to some law schools. I applied to some history PhD programs, and then I applied to journalism and journalism was sort of felt like, well, if you don't really know what you want to do, like if you go to journalism, like journalism, journalists get to cover whatever, you know? So, uh, I figured it was like a good way to get to, um, deal with a lot of different topics, sure. you know, and, and f until I figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up. Yeah, so journalism took you to New York City, and from there you started getting involved in community organizing and advocacy work. Um, so we'd love to hear more about this, uh, this part of your journey, and were you always interested in politics, or did that develop later in life? I mean, I was always interested in politics. I studied politics and history at WashU. There was a great program back then called Focus that like let you take a kind of combined set of um, classes that in mine were focused on um, the civil rights movement and the history, U.S. history from sort of reconstruction to the civil rights movement, um, taught by uh, a really great professor named Mark Cornblue. And my very first activism and advocacy work ever was actually here at WashU. And um, uh, my, senior, <laughs> my senior year, um, they, uh, the administration decided not to give Professor Cornblue tenure. And he was like our favorite professor and had taught us so much about advocacy and activism and you know, the civil rights movement and American history. And we were like, we're going to start an organization called Tenure for Corn Blue. And <laughs> <laughs> so we did. We started Tenure for Corn Blue, whipped up some letterhead um, and did a sit in at Bush Hall, you know, in the history department um, and just sort of like raised a ruckus until we got a meeting with Chancellor Danforth. Um, and, and like eight of us sat around a table and promised him. Uh, I'm sorry to the alumni department. We promised him we would never donate money to Wash U. When we were, uh, that was like the best threat we had. We were all leaving in like two months. Um, but uh, you know, I've donated money to Wash U. We've, I've, I've softened that stance. And um, Professor Cornblue, obviously, he went on to have a great career. But so that was my first. My first advocacy activism project was here at Wash U. And how did you get more involved in that in New York City specifically? It, it took a while. Like my first, after journalism school, I, I kind of, it was 1994, it was the mid 90s and the internet was just starting as a, you know, commercial thing. And I, at journalism school, I actually got really, um, uh, I sort of, I got less interested in journalism. It just seemed like, you know, the jobs were terrible and it was a tough time for journalism and the internet was new and interesting and I wanted to do that. So, um, uh, my first job was actually, um, working for spin magazine, a music magazine, and I was the online editor there. Um, and that's pretty much what I did for a long time. Um, I, I worked on an early internet 1.0 projects, um, pretty much until, you know, the internet bust, um, of the early two thousands when the, you know, the dot com crash, but I was, I was still working on stuff even after that. But 
it was around that time that I started to get more involved in politics. And it was actually the, the horn honking in front of my apartment that drove me into <laughs> political action. Yes, please go into that a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Basically, I lived in this, I, I moved to Brooklyn, New York. And um, one thing that happened when I moved to Brooklyn was I became a bike commuter. And I think one of the things that inevitably happens to you when you start bike commuting in a city that's not really designed for it is it kind of, it kind of radicalizes you a little bit. So that was already happening. And, um, uh, but there was also this huge problem and it actually coincided with post 9-11 Brooklyn where, um, you know, my, my, my local neighborhood street was sort of an on-ramp to the Brooklyn bridge. The bridge was like a mile away. It wasn't close, but there was always this traffic, like terrible traffic by a sort of like December, 2001. I think also people were just kind of like traumatized and right. It's like December, 2001. There's still, you know, world trade center smoke coming into Brooklyn. It was like lasted for weeks. Um, and so one day around, it was like right before Christmas cause the, the traffic was being caused by like people loading Christmas trees into their cars. Um, there was a guy just honking in front of my apartment window. And I was like, this is it. Like, I'm done with this honking. Um, if he is still honking, um, by the time I get back from my refrigerator with a carton of eggs, he's getting an egg on his windshield. You know, it was like very, <laughs> I was very intent. Like, this was justice. Like, we, you know, I had like delivered like the sentence for this guy. And um, got back to my window. This guy is still just like doing this one long horn blast. I mean, this was like a two minute long horn blast. He totally deserved it. And um, so I open up my window and I just start like pelting eggs down at his car. I was a um, pitcher freshman year at Wash U, <laughs> um, but I, not very good. And, um, uh, but I eventually hit his windshield with like the third egg. And by that time, this guy is like out of his car and he's like looking up at my window and he's like screaming at me. And his, his general message was, um, I know where you live and I'm coming back tonight and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I was like, okay, that was a flaw in my plan. You know, like, um, that continued to drive me nuts. You know, like once you sort of hear the honking, you can't unhear it, at least if you're me. And I started doing this because I was really into, I was going to a Zen monastery in upstate New York every so often during this period too. And so I, I, I started writing haiku poems about the honking. Um, every time it really got on my nerves a lot, I would just sort of like, like, okay, take a breath, calm down, look out the window and just observe. And now let's try to like, crystallize what you're observing you know you're my, my flora and fauna in Brooklyn happens to be honking cars that's fine I'll write a, I'll write a haiku poem about it and just so I just started writing haiku poems about it and I really liked it like it actually really helped me um, in a kind of like therapeutic way and so um, I decided uh, one night that I would take my favorite haiku of the week um, and, and I remember the first haiku it was um, simply <laughs> In a haiku poem, you know, it's like five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables, right? So mine was, um, you from New Jersey, honking in front of my house in your SUV. That was it. You know, just, <laughs> just observing, just capturing the moment. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying these were good poems. But, <laughs> but um, so I took, I made 50 copies. Um, I printed them up in a limited edition. I numbered them. Uh, because I thought they'd be valuable someday. I put them up on lampposts up and down my, my street. And within a couple, every week I would go out and do that. And within a couple of weeks, I started to notice that other people were writing honkus of their own. And, you know, a couple of weeks after that, as spring emerged, 
there were hankus everywhere, like up and down the block. And uh, that is when I realized, like, I, you know, I'm not alone here. Like, <laughs> there is like a community of people who are a potential community who are also upset about this. And so that was really one of my first, I guess, after tenure for Corn Blue, my first <laughs> uh, organizing episode where I, did, I created a, I, you know, a website. I just created honku.org. And um, we, I put up an online message board. And people started, um, people started you know, joining in and like writing honkus and also starting to talk about the problem. We're like, what can we do to fix this? And we started to try to fix it. Great. Um, and I love how you turned your, you know, frustration and rage into activism in such a creative way. Uh, we often view civic engagement and advocacy in very limited ways, voting, protesting, um, advocating for certain policies, but it's so much more than that. Um, I think honkus are a great <laughs> example of that. Um, but I'd love to hear more about, um, you know, if you know of any other examples or ideas about how to be creative in your activism. There's so many creative things happening. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just sort of stick to the realm that I've worked on mostly, which is sort of like livable streets, transportation, urban planning. Um, what's a good example? Um, there is a project that, uh, came up. Uh, just a couple of years ago. And this is one of these things where, um, you know, somebody just starts playing with like data, open data, and all of a sudden, you know, a completely new uh, tool and policy effort emerges from that. Um, there's a, uh, a guy named Brian Howald in New York City who's very involved in like bike advocacy and is kind of just like a computer um, open data guy. You know, he's really into it. And he started playing around with the city's database of, um, of speed camera and school, um, school speeding violations. So in New York City, um, we have a limited amount of like automated car traffic enforcement. Um, but, but whatever, if you get a ticket, you know, from one of these cameras, it gets stored in a database and that data is open. Um, so Brian created this tool, um, that enabled you to, um, Basically, like if you saw someone sort of driving recklessly on the streets of New York, prior to Brian's tool, um, there was nothing you could really do. Like literally, like, it's like, why do we even have license plates? Like there's, you know, it's just like somebody can be driving in the most reckless fashion. You call the police, they'll be like, yeah, whatever. Um, I mean, just nothing will happen. But Brian created this tool where you could enter the license plate into Twitter as a tweet, at how's my driving NY, and then the license plate, and then it would spit back as a reply on Twitter, all of that person's uh, automated enforcement violations. You know, it would just like go ping the database, <laughs> grab it and tweet it. Um, this actually got, this, this whole tool got killed because Twitter after the, I think 2020, whatever election, before 2020, they killed um, bots. They don't want any more bots using their network. So, but now it's just a website, how's my driving and why. A really tragic example of this was a woman in my neighborhood uh, had like a medical episode. She should not have been driving. She was told by her doctors not to drive. Something happened. She ran over uh, like literally like a pregnant mom pushing a stroller and like killed children. It's just like totally terrible. Um, and, and, and in my neighborhood. And 
her uh, car was pictured in the newspaper the next day and her license plate was showing. So somebody inevitably on Twitter like entered that license plate into How's My Driving. Turned out she had like a crazy amount of traffic violations. She should not have been driving, you know, but there was no mechanism in the city to, um, to create that accountability for these habitually reckless drivers. And that um, tool, plus this like, the awareness that it created, the story that it told, um, enabled a bunch of us to start to create a piece of legislation called the Reckless Driver Accountability Act, um, which was actually, it took about three years and there are many compromises as there are, um, and the name changed, but um, it got passed into law in, um, you know, right before the pandemic in 2020. So that was a really cool example where just someone twiddling around being creative, you know, following their obsession leads to like real change in the law. Yeah, that's such a powerful example of someone taking their own interest and skill and using it for good to pass legislation. And I kind of want to swing the focus back to you and um, get back to when you founded Streets Blog in 20, 2006. And then also wanted to emphasize you're currently the host of the War on Cars podcast. Um, <laughs> so I did just want to ask what led you to starting these business endeavors and how did you kind of know the form that you wanted to utilize? Um, and then also for any entrepreneurial students who may be in attendance, um, what advice do you have? You know, I've personally always been interested career-wise in like whatever new medium is emerging. So in 2005, when, when I started working on Streets Blog, um, you know, this idea that blogging could be a career was completely absurd. Um, it, and literally, like I applied to some grad schools at the same time because I was like, maybe I could get a PhD or something. And be like a real grown up, um, <laughs> and you know, uh, you know, have like a career. Cause we, we also just had, I had a one year old child and, um, it didn't really seem like blogging could be a real thing, but I just saw a, a few interesting examples of it out in the world where, you know, there was a website called bike Portland in Portland, Oregon. Um, there was a website in New York city called the politicker and there were people doing really interesting journalism, um, just kind of like as one, two, three person operations. And I really liked that idea. And I liked the idea of how, you know, you really couldn't get serious news coverage on li livable streets issues in New York city from the regular newspapers. They just didn't think a fight over a bike lane or parking spots or a new bus service was like worthy of, you know, coverage in the New York times, except for maybe once a month. And I was just like, no, like this really, that's us. Like this matters like as much as anything to people in New York city. So, um, so streets blog was like this idea where, you know, why don't we try to use this new medium, um, to really hold city hall accountable and bring new ideas to New York, New York. And it just, it worked, it worked really quickly. It so like within two months of it launching, I was starting to get, you know, um, sort of like emails from people who are like, Hey, the deputy mayor just yelled at the DOT commissioner on the steps at city hall. Like they're really, you know, like something that we had written was like getting this city hall to pay attention. Um, and so that was incredibly satisfying. And then I was kind of hooked after that. Um, and there's the war on cars. <laughs> <laughs> um, I could, I could, should I go into that too? Yes, please, please do. All right. Yeah, so just, I mean, skipping way. So I don't run the Streets blog anymore. Um, I, I ran that until about 2011 and um, handed it off to uh, Ben Freed, who's a great editor. We're on our third editor now. In fact, the national reporter, Kia Wilson, she, um, 
she lives and works here in St. Louis. Um, so, and has Wash U affiliation, I believe as well. Um, she does, she was here like 20 years ago. So, um, she's great. Um, but, um, after Streets Blog, I started to get this feeling um, toward the end of the 20 teens that you know we had done a pretty good job of we being like this advocacy community because that's always how I saw it. It's like Streets Blog was part of this ecosystem of advocacy organizations and people inside and outside of government who were working on this same set of changes um, and you know working on different angles of it. And Streets Blog sort of was a container and you know, homepage for all of them. And, um, but I was starting to get the feeling and it coincided with the advent of app cars like Uber, um, in big cities that we were missing the boat that like street design, um, and land use actually wasn't going to solve the whole problem that the problem was just fundamentally cars. And for some reason, we're like really afraid to talk about cars as a problem. Like, it's just like a forbidden topic in the U.S. <laughs> to even like, and you know, that like, uh, you know, we have this, this form of transportation, this technology that kills over 40,000 Americans a year. It's the biggest source of carbon emissions. It totally alienates us from each other. Um, it makes it really difficult, if not impossible, to have density, the density that we need to have a functional city. Um, it's wildly expensive, in part because of the way that car-oriented development makes you sprawl. Um, I, I mean, I would go as far as saying, like, automobile sprawl, uh, the, this pattern of living that we've created in the U.S. over the last 70 years, and that we're, we're really living at the end of a really weird experiment where we decided everything is going to be done in a car in this country. I, I believe it's like, it's fundamentally one of the reasons why we're having problems with democracy in this country. You know, that like, if, if citizens are, if the relationship we have to each other is within like, is mainly within like metal boxes, where, you know, you can only really communicate with each other in a monosyllabic horn blast. <laughs> <laughs> and you're mainly in competition for scarce street space with your fellow citizens. If you do want to say something political, it's done at the length of a bumper sticker or a sign. Honk, you know, if you believe this. <laughs> and like, that's, that's political discourse. But that's, that's kind of like what the car world is. And I, I actually think it's like, it's one of the things that's degrading U.S. democracy right now. Um, what were you asking again? <laughs> I just went I on full I asked a lot rant. of questions at once. So to be fair, that is fine. I guess the last question that you could touch on perhaps is if there's any entrepreneurial students, what advice oh, would you yeah, have yeah, for yeah. them? With Streets Blog, I feel like I just got really lucky um, in that I knew that there was a, uh, a funder for it. You know, um, there, this guy, Mark Gorton, who's a he's a hedge fund guy in New York City and um, has, you know, substantial wealth and was really interested in funding projects in this vein. OK, so I was able to pitch him the idea for Streets Blog. And I think one of you know, that's not very replicable, right? Like, you know, do you know a guy like that's, you know, that's like, <laughs> you know, hard to replicate. But um, I do think that like this idea that, you know, like it's, it really is about relationships, you know, whether it's advocacy or fundraising, um, being able to like make these connections with relationships that you have and being able to like go out and create relationships is really important. I'll give you one more small example of that, which is like um, early in my advocacy career, there was a, a repaving happening in my neighborhood, you know, just like a normal, like they scrape the asphalt off and they put down new asphalt. 
And, but in New York, they like leave the street unpaved for like two weeks before they do the new version of it. Um, and during that time, I called a guy that I had begun to work with um, through advocacy at the Department of Transportation. I was like, hey, um, I'm not going to reveal his name, but um, it's like, hey, um, you know, this street you're repaving in my neighborhood, it's supposed to be, it's in the bike master plan as a bike street. Like, are you guys going to put a bike lane down um, when you're done? And he was like, huh, I don't think the bike lane guys are looking at it. And, you know, it's just like, isn't this your job? Like, isn't this what you guys do at city government? Um, but it's not sometimes, you know, they need somebody to like nudge them a little bit. And so he got back to me and he's like, look, we need some, we need some community support. You know, it's not enough time for meetings, but why not? If you could get me some evidence of community support, like we would definitely do it. You know, it's, it will put the bike lanes down. And so me and like three or four other people went out and just collected signatures from all the merchants on this avenue. And, you know, got a bunch of signatures and that was like enough to give the DOT cover to do this project. So again, there's a little bit of an aspect of like, I knew a guy, you know, but like it was relationships formed like in doing this work. And I just think that's like the key if you're doing anything entrepreneurial or advocacy oriented, mm -hmm. activism oriented. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and you've had, you know, We've touched on several of the victories that you've had, whether that's, you know, starting the website or getting legislation passed or getting honkus trending in your neighborhood. Um, so could you talk a little bit more about what the arc of change looked like in all of those processes and any of the considerations that um, you had afterward? I mean, the arc of change is too slow. It's way too, it's always too slow. I think if you have this, if you're cursed with this sort of like advocacy activism bug, like you can never really be satisfied. <laughs> and I think that's something that like, as I get older, like I'm just sort of grappling with that. Um, the other night, um, my wife and I were like biking home from Manhattan over the Brooklyn bridge, which used to be like a truly hellish place to bike because you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's the Brooklyn bridge. So it's one of the biggest tourist attractions in America. And the bike and pedestrian path used to be shared. Um, so you would just be sort of weaving in and out of um, tourists and pedestrians, and it was really dangerous. It stunk for everybody. Um, but at the end of his last term, uh, Mayor de Blasio of New York City um, put down uh, a bike lane on, um, on, on the roadbed, basically took a lane away from cars. And it also so happened that Bill de Blasio was the first city council member that I ever worked with. Like the, like the first real advocacy I ever did after the Honku thing was this campaign called Car Free Prospect Park. We were just sort of like, you know, trying to get cars out of like Brooklyn's biggest park. It's like, why? I don't know. There's still cars in Forest City Park too, right? Or mm -hmm. Forest, sorry, Forest Park. Lots of them. Lots yeah. Of them. So, right. So why? Like there's cars everywhere else. <laughs> like you also need to take Forest Park from us. So that was, that was, um, that was the same in Brooklyn. And I didn't even really care. Like at that time in my life, I didn't really use prospect park that much, but I was just like, this is a no brainer. Like there shouldn't be car traffic, rush hour car traffic in this park. And so I started working on that campaign and Bill was, Bill de Blasio was the first, you know, I delivered like 10,000 signatures to his door. I mean, like people want a car free, a three month trial period of a car free park during the summer. Anyways. Here I am 20 years later, my wife and I are biking up the Brooklyn Bridge on this bike lane that Bill de Blasio put down to great kind of like controversy. It was not that easy. And we're on electric assist city bikes. 
And, you know, as much as I can get cranky about lack of progress, slow progress, I did have this moment like gliding home, like effortlessly on my e-bike, you know, over this <laughs> bike lane on the bridge that like, I don't know, I didn't really work on that as an advocate, but like, I could like maybe take a look and be like, I was one of the first people to bother Bill de Blasio about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, you know, like just, as, I was part of that movement, you know, that helped get this here. Right. Yeah. But like, that's not even the important thing. The important thing was just like, it felt like progress. You know, it was like, this is like really like my kids are growing up in a different city. You know, like they can bike around, like people can't like young families are biking around. Um, things are also getting worse in a wide variety of ways, but things are also getting better. It's like happening simultaneously. Yeah. And I mean, right now in New York City, the city is debating a plan for a toll on drivers entering Manhattan, and that would better fund public transit. Um, but you m just mentioned Forest Park, and obviously in St. Louis, things are very different. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on our context here in St. Louis, um, where the city is cutting routes and further limiting our options. In this context, what recommendations do you have for organizing and for strategizing? And um, what do, what should we as students and members of the St. Louis community think about to design a better city? You know, St. Louis is tough. I mean, St. Louis, um, you know, fiscally has huge problems. Um, the, the size of government, like the size of municipal government is like shockingly small. Um, this student I met with yesterday, um, she actually interned in the city planning department. She said there was a staff of only six people in St. Louis, city planning department. That's like, I mean, New York city has like hundreds of people in city planning. So, you know, there's really low capacity here. Um, but like that also creates a huge set of opportunities for like local advocacy groups and activists to fill the void and very likely might be welcome you know, by city government and filling the void. I, I you know, I'm staying um, down near the Cortex neighborhood on the other side of the park from WashU. I kind of figured, um, you know, I could take the I could take the Metrolink here. I was like hoping there might be like a bike share in St. Louis and I could just ride it through the park here. But there there isn't. Um, uh, <laughs> but like, look, I look at for I look at is it Forest Park Boulevard or Ave? I forget. Park. Parkway. Okay. <laughs> totally got that wrong. I look at Forest Park Parkway and um, it's like this highway. There, there, I look at a lot of the streets in St. Louis and there's like plenty of space for bike lanes, you know, like actually I think a bike network in St. Louis, like, like, you know, spatially, like land use wise would be not a problem. Like you really do have the space for it. And I think one of the realms that advocates really might want to take a look at in a place like this is the realm of tactical urbanism. And that's a school of advocacy. It's like a school of direct action where you just go out and you make the changes that you want to see, <laughs> you know? So it's like, oh, this metered parking spot on Del Mar, this should really be like a bench and a table and a small potted tree. You go like, do it, just do it. Drop that stuff on the ground. Do it for two hours, pay the meter, um, do it, you know, make the change that you want to see. Um, go out with cones, traffic cones, um, you know, put like sunflowers in them, get like a hundred traffic cones, make a bike lane for two blocks, you know, on Forest Park or whatever street it is that you think really needs one. Um, take a bunch of pictures. We have social media now. It's so easy to spread ideas. Um, show people that like these ideas are in demand. 
people want this stuff. And if you give it to them, they'll use it and the city will be better. So I think there's a lot of potential here, honestly. There definitely is. And I mean, there are exciting parts, um, the Brookline Greenway being one of them that will connect the arch to um, Forest Park. But again, that's still years away. Um, we could continue asking questions, but we did want to take a minute and open it up for some audience questions as well. Hi, Aaron. Uh, well, first of all, I wanted to thank you for uh, the car-free Forest Park. I was there last summer. I ran there uh, dozens of times, and I can't even imagine what it would be like if cars were there. Oh, you mean Prospect Park in Brooklyn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, did I say Forest? Yeah, yeah, Forest Park. Prospect, Prospect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, so it seems like so many cities outside of North America are decades ahead in terms of uh, walkability and transportation. Um, why do you stay here? Why, uh, what is the, the reason that keeps you in the United States instead of just going to a place that's better in those ways? Um. It's funny that you mentioned that because Doug, Sarah, and I, my co-hosts on The War on Cars, it's like in almost every production meeting starts with like, we should just move. <laughs> 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 like, what about Utrecht? You know, what about uh, Copenhagen? What about Bogota? They have, you know, even like, uh, you know, there's just a million cities. Seoul, South Korea is really appealing to me. Um, anyways, we talk about this all the time. Um, but, you know, the fact is like, I have kids in school, <laughs> I have a house, I have family. It would be like... It's hard to move. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, I would really, you know, after we, we get the youngest guy um, off to wash you, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I do want to spend some time outside of this country. Like, I think this country is kind of crazy right now. And um, it would be really, really good to, like, just be able to, like, live in a different place. Um, you know, and it's not just the cars. It's, like, the guns and the politics and... But yeah, so it's not that easy. Um, to your point though, I do think there's really, a, a, like the idea of bringing best practices from other cities, um, that's always been core to like what Streets Blog does. Um, the best tool for it is this website recreated uh, called Street Films, Street Films, which is run by Clarence Eckerson, my, my longtime colleague. Um, it's an amazing project, what Clarence has done for the last 20 years. And it's really like using short web video which when he started, it was kind of a new idea. Like YouTube didn't really, I don't think it existed yet even. Um, but like using short web video to bring best practices from other places. Um, if you're into this set of topics, like I highly recommend street films, though there are a bunch of people doing this now on TikTok and YouTube. And you know, uh, there's a, a guy who runs a channel called Not Just Bikes, great. You know, he's like a Canadian guy who lives in the Netherlands now. And this is what he does. He's just like, look at what we're missing out on um, in a really effective way. So I think about that a lot. I really, really like the show. Um, Thank you. Work, I hope you guys do. Um, I try to listen to every episode. <laughs> wow. cool. um, my question is in regards to uh, more uh, or farther away travel. Um, I was just traveling in between Chicago and St. Louis. Recently, and I took the Amtrak, which is a five and a hour, five and a half hour ride um, from here to Chicago. And then one of my best friends used to live in Kansas City, would also take the Amtrak, and it was also five and a half hours, even though the drive is three and a half hours. So I just wanted to know what your opinion was on where 
well, where we stand as like high-speed rail or what could that future look for us? Um, we'll, how is it that we have six flights that live, leave from St. Louis to Chicago, but we only have two train options? So. Oh, man. Yeah, <laughs> right? It's such a bummer. Um, it's such a, you know, there are some really effective advocates who have been working on like national rail and national high-speed rail, um, intercity rail, uh, for a long time. And, you know, during the Obama administration, it looked like we might get some real movement there. Um, high-speed rail did start in, uh, California, though the route is a little bit weird. It's, you know, California has its kind of problems with nimbyism, you know, not in my backyard. So they like kind of ran it away from cities, which is not what you, you know, you want rail to run into the city so people can just like get off and like be where they want to be. Um, I don't know what to say. It's terrible. I mean, we, I, I think of it more like the politics of it, um, as just like, uh, like, like we should just pitch it as a freedom of choice type of thing. You know, like Americans don't realize that like, I mean, cars are sold as freedom, but if you don't have any other choices, you know, if you have to drive everywhere, um, first of all, it's, it's expensive. A lot of people can't do it. Um, it's dangerous. It's inconvenient. So, you know, giving people more freedom of choice with rail, um, feels to me like the pitch, but, um, the politics of it just, you know, it's just not happening. Um, I think it probably needs to start in small stretches like, you know, Columbus, uh, sorry, um, you know, Columbus, Ohio to um, Cincinnati or, you know what I mean? Like, like people need to see some examples of it working and how good it can be um, beyond, you know, the Northeast corridor. But it's a huge problem. It's just being disinvested from right now. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Jake. I'm a physical therapist and I work with victims of trauma in St. Louis. So a lot of those traumatic patients are pedestrian versus car. But I think I see a lot more of that pedestrian versus car in rural settings. So people trying to cross uh, the street where there's no crosswalks from like a gas station to a motel or something, probably 80% of my pedestrian versus cars are in that setting. Uh, how are rural um, community members going to advocate for urbanism? Yeah. I mean, I'm bad at this one. Um, <clears throat> you know, my focus has really been on um, on big city stuff mostly, and um, some suburban activism. But you know, rural places in America have really been hurt by automobile dependence in a profound way. Um, you know, we used to be a nation of towns and villages, you know, and small cities were viable and, um, you know, and then there were, there were bigger cities, um, and increasingly were, you know, a, a nation of like really big cities and suburbs and towns and villages have kind of been obliterated. Um, there's a great organization, uh, called strong towns based in Minnesota, and they really work on this kind of rural piece of this, um, in a way that I think um, really appeals, uh, you'd probably be offended by me saying this, but to like more red state, uh, rural, uh, conservative, um, kind of base. And, you know, they focus on all kinds of different things, but like one of the big focuses 
is the economics of automobile dependence in rural places um, and how um, a lot of the problem is that these places don't have a tax base anymore and they can't support their automobile infrastructure. And so returning to more of a um, compact, walkable town or village, um, like returning to the center, coming back from sprawl, um, would really help these places um, fiscally, economically. And I know that that's, a, that's an argument that has really worked for strong towns and with, with this, the audiences that they speak to. that is like kind of a politicized issue that's like further polarizing us like oh um, an urban dense walkable community is one that is uh, liberal and that's not something I want or is is it just perceived in my eyes or is there some data to back that up yeah I think it's totally politicized it's absolutely this is all part of the culture war now um, our, our last episode of the podcast was about like we just started noticing how much war on cars was popping up in um, mainstream media. And it's it's popping up as part of like the kind of partisan electioneering that we're, you know, we're now in election season. Um, this is definitely partisan stuff. And if you, if you talk about like trying to make a place like, you know, a, a more rural, small town, you know, more densified, um, people will you know, often say like, hey, we don't wanna be Manhattan. And they're like, okay, well, we're not talking about like 80 story towers here. We're just like, you know, like just having sidewalks again would be nice. Um, so, you know, which is not, I'm not trying to like put down that um, audience, but um, yeah, it's all, it sort of, it, it's all part of this kind of crazy political culture that we have now. And that's become a big problem. And I think it's like one of the reasons why you have to have folks from, like those places doing the advocacy, you know, which is why, like I was talking about strong towns, I feel like, you know, those guys really know how to, you know, they're from, they're from a small town in Minnesota. Like they speak the language. That's, I think it's always critical when you're doing advocacy and activism. All right, perfect. Um, we have one more question to end yes. on tonight. Um, we always like to ask our guests this uh, one final question. What is currently giving you hope? Mm. Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> Let's see, like climate dread. Okay, let me see if I can get through that. All right, that's another one. Um, no, seriously, uh, hope. Okay, two projects, which are, I think, like in different veins. Um, one, bike bus. Have people heard of the bike bus? BC bus? It started in Catalonia in Spain, in the like near Barcelona. Um, but basically this project where um, parents decided and kids decided they wanted to be able to ride a bicycle to school, but the streets were not safe. So they created the bike bus and they just sort of said like, okay, um, the bike bus is going to start, you know, at this location and it's going to have these, uh, eight stops on the way to school, join the bike bus, like meet us at a stop. Um, if you want to, if you want to ride the bike bus. And so this, this project, you know, it started in Spain, it started in Spain. It sort of, you know, got some social media attention and now there are people organizing bike buses all over the place, which, and I just, I think that's just so great. You know, that's like, you're not really even, you're not like standing on the steps of city hall demanding something. You are like, just, you're just making the change happen, you know? And I guarantee you some of those bike bus routes become places with like really good protected bike lanes, you know, within the next three years. Right. 
Um, so that's like a real direct action, citizen, citizen engagement type thing. The, the second thing that gives me hope is this uh, legislation that just passed in California um, called AB, I think the number is 2097. And it's a, it's a law that took really hard work uh, to pass um, that, that basically um, bans uh, parking minimums, minimum parking requirements. So that's a little wonky. Um, but, uh, basically like if you build a development in most places in California, prior to the signing of this law, you have to include parking. So, you know, you want to include, you want to build a, a, a condo with, uh, 60 units, uh, in the middle of Berkeley or something. Um, the zoning says, well, you have to have like 120 parking spots. I'm just making those numbers up, but it's something like that. And inevitably, if you have to have 120 parking spots, your project, um, to build more, density and affordable housing um, becomes economically unviable and it becomes sprawly, you know, because parking takes up a lot of space. Um, so that law uh, was put forward by a, an advocacy effort that calls itself the YIMBY movement, the yes in my backyard <laughs> movement. Um, so California YIMBY, it's an actual organization. And these guys did like, it was in some ways the opposite. They didn't do like, you know, this is a realm where it's like, you can't just be a citizen and go change the zoning. You have to really like, go into deep, like profound, like state legislature politics, you know, pull all the levers, know how to know how to make a law pass. And so both of those, those are two things that give me hope. All right. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Let's give yes, a round of applause you. to Aaron. Thanks for being with us as we dive into this civic moment. You can find the Gephardt Institute for Civic and Community Engagement on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to This Civic Moment everywhere podcasts are found. Be sure to drop a five-star review and give us your feedback in the comments. You can also support This Civic Moment and the Gephardt Institute with your monetary gifts at gephardtinstitute.wussel.edu. We'll see you next time.